Hello, it's Alyssa Milano, and I can't wait for you to read my new book, Sorry Not Sorry. It's a collection of essays where I share my unapologetic thoughts on life, culture, activism, and motherhood. You'll learn some things about me that I know you've never heard before and share in my story as an activist. This book is such a big part of my heart, and so are you, and thank you for that. Sorry Not Sorry is available now everywhere books are sold. Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. The United States imprisons more of its population than any other nation on Earth. We also incarcerate more people than any other nation. This reality, combined with the conditions and injustices inherent in those statistics, has driven a growing movement for prison reform. Colleen Aaron has looked inside that movement in her new book, Reform Nation, The First Step Act, and the movement to end mass incarceration. And she joins us here to discuss. Today, the U.S. imprisons more people, both per capita and in terms of number of people incarcerated, than any other country in the world. Of approximately 10 million people currently incarcerated worldwide, over 2 million of them are imprisoned in the U.S. Today, the bickering stops. The era of excuses is over. The law-abiding citizens of our country have made their voices heard. Never again should Washington put politics and party above law and order. America spends $80 billion a year keeping folks locked up. We represent 5% of the world's population, 25% of its inmates. After years of waiting, we assembled a historic coalition, and it was indeed historic. We had them so liberal you wouldn't believe it, and so conservative you wouldn't believe it. Hi, I'm Colleen Aran. I'm a criminologist, writer, and criminal justice reform advocate. I believe that in our shared humanity, in our respect for individual rights, and our common interest in reducing harm, lies the basis for a truly mass movement to end mass incarceration. Sorry, not sorry. Colleen, welcome to Sorry Not Sorry. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Let's start with telling our listeners a little bit about who you are and the work that you do. I am currently an associate professor of uh, sociology and criminal justice at William Patterson University. But prior to that, I spent about 10 years in the nonprofit space, criminal justice advocacy for reform in the anti-death penalty movement. I directed organizing at New Yorkers Against the Death Penalty, which thankfully New York no longer has a death penalty, so we were successful. Thank you so much for doing that work. I think I just want to start with getting a general landscape of how the United States compares to the rest of the world in terms of how we incarcerate our population. 
we're quite the outlier in terms of our criminal justice policies compared to those who are advanced democracies. But even compared to countries that are not advanced democracies, we're an outlier. We incarcerate a higher percentage of our population than any other country in the world. One in three Americans currently has some type of connection to the criminal justice system. They were either incarcerated themselves or they had a family member or a friend who's been incarcerated. We also stand out for the our use, our retention of the death penalty and the sheer length of the sentences that we meet out for crimes when those who we would compare ourselves with provide much lesser sentences. And when you say, when we talk about incarceration rates, we imprison a higher percentage of our population than, say, Cuba or Russia or Iran. And I'm wondering if you have some indication of how this came to be true. Yes. And I I would just add that Russia has abolished the death penalty. So oftentimes we think about these countries as somehow having harsher policies than we do. And the death penalty stands out as one that we retain. So how did we come to this place? We're this outlier. It's happened over several decades. In the 1970s, our incarceration rate did not stand out too much comparatively to our Western European, for example, counterparts. We had a much lesser number of people who were incarcerated. And even if we were to reduce our incarcerated population by 50% today, it would still be higher than it was in the 1970s when we had about the same crime rate. So keeping all things equal, we could eliminate fully 50% of the population and we'd still have a higher incarceration rate today. And so it was an overreaction, one that obviously had very disparate racial impact over 40 years, a reaction to an uptick in crime that was premised in fear and bipartisan consensus around the need to do something about crime. So it wasn't just the Republicans. In fact, liberals were very much on board with the sentencing and prison reform changes that took place in the late 70s, in the 1980s, with federal criminal justice, quote unquote, reform that brought harsher sentencing, longer sentences, truth in sentencing, mandatory minimums in the 1980s. And then, of course, 1990s was infamous for the 1990 crime bill, which really saw incarceration skyrocket to its highest point, which was reached in the early 20th century. Let's just talk about what part racism plays in all of these policies. There's various ways in which it influences the policies, some of which are easier to see than others. For example, the crack cocaine sentencing disparity, which was set at 100 to 1, clearly had a disparate impact on communities of color that were associated with the crack epidemic. This obviously has a differential effect on communities of color, particularly those in urban areas. President Obama signed a new law at the White House today that will close the long-disputed gap in federal sentencing for crap versus powder cocaine. Since 1986, defendants caught with 500 grams of powder cocaine have gotten the same punishment, five years in prison, as defendants convicted of possessing only five grams of crack cocaine. That's a sentencing ratio of 100 to 1. And what is the cost to us? I'm talking not only financially, but also culturally? Oh, I think that 
the cost is impossible to overstate because when one in three Americans is impacted by mass incarceration, that's obviously not only a loss in terms of finances, how much money we're spending to incarcerate people, but we're taking people out of their communities. People are losing their mothers, their brothers, their sisters. We're losing out on potentially creative, brilliant workers who can be very productive members of society. We're losing out on alternatives to dealing with harm that is created by crime. But what are the harms that are produced by incarceration? When you have entire city block where a million dollars is being spent on incarcerating people in those blocks. So the collateral consequences are enormous. And then, of course, culturally, what does it say about us when we have one in three people who is impacted by mass incarceration? What kind of sensibilities do we have about empathy and compassion? What do you think it does say about us? It signifies a bit of a loss of the social contract that's been broken with our own citizenry. It signifies that we take the easy way out and thinking that punishment is the only response to harm that's created and that removing people is a better way of dealing with a problem than finding some type of way of bringing them into the solution, integrating them and working towards solutions that deal with harm in a very holistic way that see it not only in terms of victim offender, but the consequences for an entire community. It's a terrible stain upon our society that this is that expression about when you only have a hammer, everything is a nail. Dealing with this in one way is an enormous sign of our lack of creativity for being the United States, like the you know center of global innovation, that we couldn't find something better than what we have. In the book, you start with the First Step Act. Tell us about that act. So the First Step Act was rather groundbreaking in that it was signed during the Trump administration, which when he was elected, I don't think anyone thought that any type of criminal justice reform was going to go forward because he came in and was providing false statistics on homicide rates, saying it was at the highest point in 40 years and this kind of fire and fury rhetoric. But it was one of only a handful of federal prison and criminal justice reform bills over the past 40 years that made some attempt to decarcerate and to move towards a more ameliorative system. So it had two principal components. One was changing federal corrections policy, and the other dealt with sentencing. So it had a bunch of really good stuff in it. And the evidence is beginning to roll out that it was, in fact, successful. For instance, it changed what's known as earned time credit. So if individuals who were incarcerated participated in 30 days of programming according to their risks and needs, they'd be awarded 10 days of earned time credit, which when it added up to the length of time remaining in their sentences, they could actually be released. It would involve electronic monitoring, but they could be released. The sentencing changes were also very positive in that it made a gesture at 
ending some of the mandatory minimums that, as we had just talked about, really led toward mass incarceration. For example, it expanded safety valves for mandatory minimums, so the harshest ones were not triggered. It made retroactive Obama's Fair Sentencing Act, so thousands of people were released who had been sentenced under the 1980s, 100 to 1 disparities. It provided individuals with personal identification before they left. It ended LWAP as a mandatory minimum and replaced it with a minimum of 25. And then a whole bunch of other kind of one-off good deeds, good provisions, such as women could no longer be shackled when they were pregnant or postpartum. They were given enough feminine products according to their needs. A juvenile solitary confinement was largely abolished, and there was a reduction in the amount of distance that people who were incarcerated could be placed outside of their families. So it was a real smorgasbord of positive achievements in this legislation, both in terms of prison reform and sentencing. Under the new criminal justice law signed by President Trump today, federal inmates will be placed in prisons within 500 miles of their families. That's just one of the changes coming from the First Step Act. It's a rare bipartisan effort that deals with both sentencing and prison reforms. It will lower mandatory minimum sentences. It will retroactively change sentencing disparities for drug crimes, including for powder and crack cocaine. Such differences have often led to longer prison times for African-Americans. And I'm going to say it. I'm not afraid. The First Step Act might be the only thing (laughs) Donald Trump has done in his entire life that I can get behind, even if it is an imperfect bill. And I am not the only person who feels this way, right? Please say right. That it's imperfect or that it was one of the only good things that he did. I'm totally on board with all of it. Yes, he passed a good bill. I don't need to get into his motivations. I don't need to get into anything else he did to say that the bill stands on its own as a good bill. It was a first step. And now look where we are. I don't know if the first step back could be passed today at this moment. Right. True. And there's something about this movement of prison reform that brings strange bedfellows together, pairing like liberal activists on the left and hard right, small government conservatives together. Why is that? That's a great point. And that was one of the interesting questions that was raised for me. It's important to first note that mass incarceration was a bipartisan creation. That creating the mass incarceration was bipartisan itself. Absolutely. So creating it was bipartisan. So it's not like this entire entire departure that trying to dismantle it might be also a bipartisan creation. It brought these strange bedfellows together from the most progressive to the most conservative because everyone has a stake in public safety and harm reduction. And so liberals, those on the left, come to it from very much a social justice point of view. We see the disparate racial impact, the devastation that is left in particularly poorer communities of color. The left sees it really as a legacy of slavery that has never been overcome. It's another form like Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow became the Bible of this movement on the left. It's a legacy of slavery. So it's a metamorphosized version of slavery. Therefore, it should be abolished or changed to be more just. But the right sees it as a sign that we've moved away from having the ability to be redeemed and the ability for uh, people to have second chances, which is very much a Christian sensibility. 
and individuals' ability to participate in their families and in work productively. So everyone has a stake in criminal justice reform. They may come to it from completely different places, but it does unite them. We saw, I want to bring this up because it's something that I sometimes have dealt with in my activism. We saw Kim Kardashian take a lot of heat from the left for working with Trump on the First Step Act. And I can tell you, I've seen that from the left myself when working across the aisle in pursuit of a greater good. I met with Senator Cruz on gun violence prevention, which is a whole other episode. In your opinion, what does this demand for ideological purity do to movements like the prison reform movement or even the gun violence prevention movement? It makes it a movement where the audience becomes your choir. And if you are only speaking to your choir, you are not going to have a mass movement. Mass movements happen when you can provide a very large umbrella where everyone can see themselves as having a stake in and participating in it. Americans do not come in only one political tribe. And so we really do need to move beyond ideological purity and find some way. You don't just need to use the same narrative, the same story. You don't even need to see the origins of the problem in the same place. But if you can't speak to each other, if there is the sense that we're so ideologically pure that we can't talk to the other side, and that's a sign of betrayal, mass incarceration to dismantle it. It requires an army. You have federal legislation, you have state legislation, thousands and thousands of municipalities that have to have their policies performed. And so if you're just speaking to, say, the 10% of the population that agrees with you, you're not going to make any change. And isn't that why we're all doing what we do as far as activism goes, is to see the outcome be something that is better for humanity, that is better for the country, that is better for the individual. I want people to have a better life. I thought it was really interesting. You break down the different factions working for prison reform. And I'd just like to run through some of them, if you don't mind. Let's start with billionaires because everyone loves to hate billionaires. Tell me what's their role in the movement. Sure. Among the billionaires that are involved in reform, who I highlight in the book, are uh, Michael Lovegratz, Dan Loeb, and the Arnolds. And they have, Michael Lovegratz had a great quote in the book where he says, the army is now really fucking huge. But my role in it is to start pouring oil on the ammo for people. I think that these billionaires have been very invested in criminal justice reform in two ways. One is that they have been personal advocates for individuals who have been victimized. And so they'll personally, they'll use their personal contacts to lobby for individuals whose cases have been brought to their uh, attention. But the second and more important way is that they are funding major philanthropic initiatives on behalf of criminal justice reform. If we look at Michael Novogratz, he funds Galaxy Gives, which is funding incredible formerly incarcerated leaders, among others, to go out and do advocacy and to do direct services. Dan Loeb has provided funding for the Marshall Project, and the Arnolds are perhaps the largest movers and shakers in trying to fund research and policy in criminal justice reform in the country. And so when you have a fight as big as the fight that mass incarceration is, 
and you need capital to help mobilize people, to provide funding for leaders to scale what they're doing, to get the message out, the media. Everyone loves to hate billionaires, but that seems very reductionist. If their capital is being used for good and handed over to the people doing the work, I think that this blanket criticism is not fair. And you also talk about celebrity activists, and I should mention here that I'm one of the people you interviewed for this book. But I want to discuss, what do you see as the role of celebrities in pushing the movement forward, or any movement forward? She really has just changed the national narrative on criminal justice reform. Known globally for her reality TV show, fashion brands, and social media game, Kim Kardashian's influence goes far beyond her Instagram page. Human rights attorney Jessica Jackson, Kardashian's attorney mentor, says the reality star turned aspiring attorney is now using her global platform to open the dialogue about prison reform. Celebrity involvement in politics goes back potentially thousands of years if you want to talk about the fame of politicians who then were highly influential in politics. But the 20th century has been enormously impactful, for example, in the anti-apartheid movement. I think that celebrities have the ability, because of the audience that you have, because of the platform that you have, to make an issue popularized, make an issue mainstreamed, which is enormously important from the sense of funders and those who maybe want to make change in that space. And so bringing it to a popular audience and showing that this is something that we should be having a conversation around is not this niche subject, I think is valuable. And then providing that platform which is something that you talked about in the interview for those who are involved in the work to make their voices heard. I completely disagree with the idea that celebrity is something to be looked down upon in activism. I think that obviously celebrity shows up for a photo shoot and then doesn't do the work, right? Then it's become just about their brand and not about self-serving. But I would say that it's not just celebrities who are self-serving when you have a movement where there's now a lot of money that's involved. Being self-serving is a very human motivation, so anyone can be caught up in that. So I wouldn't level the charge of being self-serving only at billionaires or only at celebrities. There's enough of that to go around in the nonprofit industrial complex, too. I want to talk about the people who I think are obviously the most important in this movement, and that's the people who are currently or who were previously incarcerated. People like my friend Richie Reseda, who fights for abolition, or Desmond Mead, who successfully got felon voting rights restored in Florida. Just incredible people doing incredible things. How do these people fit into the coalition? This has really been an enormous change over the past 20 years. Obviously, there are always formerly incarcerated and currently incarcerated people who have been at the forefront of the, I don't know if prison reform is a very understated word, but they've been at the center of the politics around that from the Attica uprising and everything that we saw in that constellation. So it's not like this is new and they haven't been involved. I think that in the mainstream movement, what's happened is that they've begun to be recognized for the first time as being worthy quote unquote, of being true leaders in this space and are being seen as people who should be heading up the conversations and invested in. And so you find now that funders are looking to provide such a support for formerly incarcerated leaders. And for example, the formerly incarcerated 
people and their families movement, the organization is really taking a center stage. Just Leadership USA is all about cultivating formerly incarcerated leaders to do advocacy. So they're now really taking their place at the table. The Smart Justice Advocates is a volunteer group of formerly incarcerated individuals. We draft bills, meet with lawmakers, and work on criminal justice reform. When they come together, the Smart Justice Advocates turn their lived experiences into strength in the fight to reform a broken system. But as one of my interviewees, Andre Ward, said, he said, we're at the table, but we're not going to accept your crumbs. I love that because there is a tension. Okay, we have these leaders, but how much are they being used as tokens and being gestured at having power? And how much are they really driving the conversation? And there's still, according to them, there's plenty of room left for them to take front and center in, the, in leading reform. And as you've mentioned throughout the interview, this is a pretty broad group of people, of activists, and it doesn't even include the legislators who have to enact these reform laws. How do they all fit together when you have such a broad coalition fighting for the same thing? They're not all fighting for the same thing, and I think that's fine. I think that broadly the criminal justice reform umbrella holds them all in this loose configuration and they want to make change in the system, but they're not all fighting for the same thing at all. Like critical resistance is fighting for abolishing the entire system. And Kim Kardashian was involved with First Step Back in a meaningful way, but then we should be involved in other things. There's many ways in which organizations and individuals are involved that don't all add up to a cohesive and coherent strategy like in the whole. And I think that's fine. I think it's true with all the issues that we face. Gun violence prevention, the women's movement, everybody's going after different things. And it's all pretty useful, obviously. I wish it were more cohesive. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think we'd get more done if these organizations were all on the same page? That would lead us back to the problem we were talking about earlier of ideological purity. That if we really try to get everybody on the same page, then we're going to have just constant battles over what that end goal is. And language is important, but it's window dressing. Some of my interviewees said, I like the term con. It describes me. Others said, that's completely offensive. Others said, I'm a returning citizen. I think the important thing is that we're each taking like that adage about how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time, right? So that everybody has to take their own bite. And I think that even if it's not moving all in one direction, if it is decarceratory, if it's not trying to scale up and criminalize more, and if it's trying to ameliorate the conditions for those who are inside, if it is trying to provide more opportunities and violence prevention, if we're all working towards some aspect of harm, both in terms of interpersonal violence and drugs and harms of incarceration, if we're all working on one part of that, I don't think there needs to be lockstep. I want to talk about for-profit prisons. What's the role 
of for-profit prisons in our mass incarceration? I think it's easy to make them the boogeyman in this whole story because it obviously seems like that is morally incorrect, unethical to profit over the incarceration of humans. But for-profit prisons only make up, the last time I looked, 12.5% of all of the prisons in the country. And I think that is another false dichotomy between for-profit prisons and quote-unquote public prisons because For example, people who work in public prisons are still profiting off of the incarceration of the people on the inside. People in public prisons still have vendors who are profiting off of selling meals. Everyone profits off of these prisons, whether you call it public or not. And actually, public sector unions in those public prisons are very entrenched and powerful. And they have a vested interest in just continuing the prison going with as many people as possible, because otherwise, no prison, no work for whatever town it's been put in. I think that ethically, the idea of a private prison is despicable. It's largely a matter of semantics, because ultimately, many individuals are profiting from government public prisons. This rise in the number of incarcerated Americans also aligns chronologically with another trend in the justice system, the rise of private prisons. Many people are wary of the practice of privatizing our penal system because of news stories over the years about corrupt dealings between lawyers, judges, and prison owners and managers who arrange to have people incarcerated in exchange for cash. But there's also a series of deeper moral and historical questions that stem out of this topic. Where do you think prison reform goes from here? When I was finishing up my interviews, it was right around the period of George Floyd in summer of 2020, and the pandemic was still very much upon us. And many of the advocates that I spoke to at that moment thought, we are at precipice of something completely new and groundbreaking in criminal justice reform because you have a majority of Americans agreeing that police reform is necessary. You have more Americans than ever in history out on the streets. 10% of the American population was out protesting for George Floyd. Then the idea that people be trapped in prison and exposed to COVID and die in a bloodbath in prison, it was just this moment where we had possibility of radically reimagining because people were, how many people do we need in prison became a question. Maybe we should decarcerate and only those who are, we're really afraid of. And so there's this real hope at that time. Then within six months, we had this whiplash, this complete reversal where due to an uptick in certain types of crime, particularly homicide, which went up rather dramatically. Crime rates were still well below the 1980s and early 90s, but it was an uptick. Combined with images of urban unrest, quote unquote, there was a backlash to the positive outlook that had been in the summer of 2020 when people started using the language of defund the police. Since then, we've seen a lot of law and order rhetoric. First Up Act has come under attack by DeSantis and Pence, who are trying to outlaw and order Donald Trump, which I didn't have on my 2023 bingo. It's a moment, I think, where the movement really needs to look back at what was successful over the past 20 years to look at the types of framing and tactics that led to the passage of, say, First Step Act, because we don't want to lose ground. 
we've already lost ground on criminal justice reform, but we're not by any means in the 1980s. We still have a mainstream movement. We still have businesses and corporations that are eager to get involved in fair chance and second chance hiring practices. Business Roundtable is involved. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce is still involved. J.P. Morgan, Walmart, Butterball, all those. And in addition to that, you have real movement towards drug reform and a country that's been ravaged by drug addiction. Everybody still has a stake in this. We are not back in the 1980s because of the movement that's been built over the past 20 years. However, now is the time where the movement has to really do evaluation in going forward and how we deal with these issues, how we work together, not having moral purity tests because to build a mass movement, we're going to need the army. So in thinking of all of that and all of the obstacles and all of the hurdles that the movement has to overcome, what gives you, Colleen, hope? A few things. One is that only 5% of Americans indicated that criminal justice or fear of crime was their top priority right now. We have seen cycles of fear-mongering. There was a cycle of fear-mongering in 2015, 2016 with Trump, and it didn't go anywhere. And in fact, we had criminal justice reform. What gives me hope is the scope of the movement, what's been built. Formerly incarcerated leaders were now being positioned at the helm of this. The involvement of celebrities, the involvement of billionaires, the involvement of business. Like this movement has real roots. It's here to stay and will keep building if it's done thoughtfully. But then also, I really believe in this idea of evolving standards of decency. Can you imagine that we executed children in the 21st century? We still had that on our books. And then Roper versus Simmons came about and that changed it. We have ended some of our worst, most barbaric practices. And I think it's because we've become more civilized as a society over time, and that that combined with the strength of the movement, the fact that one in three Americans has a loved one or has themselves been affected, it has this critical mass, it has history on its side, and I also think crime will continue to go down because of demographics. So there's a host of reasons to have hope for criminal justice reform, but of course, with the caveat, this is a battle that requires Everybody has a stake in harm in public safety. And to not see it as your fight is to sit back in one of the greatest civil rights battle of our lifetime. Colleen, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you. In the early 1990s, a professor at Princeton University wrote a report that labeled me and other teenage black boys as super predators, godless, fatherless, and jobless. His assertion was supported by lawmakers who changed policy to make it easier to try children as adults in the criminal injustice system and to sentence them in prison for the remainder of their lives. As activists, we need to have one constant in our focus. How can we work to be effective in our work? This means putting aside disagreements, egos, funding concerns, and everything else if it means we can achieve our stated goals. 
It's what put Kim Kardashian and Donald Trump in the same room working on this issue, and it's something we all should emulate. There should be no doubt how I feel about Trump. He is vile and an existential threat to our nation. And yet, if he is somehow president again, and he wants to get the Equal Rights Amendment enacted, for example, I will work with him on that issue while opposing him with all of my might on all of the other critical issues I care about. We have to exist in the world we inhibit. And sometimes it makes strange bedfellows. We can't allow our sense of moral superiority to get in the way of making the world a better place. Here's hoping we don't have to. Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.